Well, the reading uh, is uh, from John this morning, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 26. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. As, uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw the water, Jesus said to her, You give me a drink. His disciples had got, gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you know the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, running up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw the water here. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. The lady answered, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right. When you, <coughs> when you say you have no hus husband, yeah. uh, the fact is you have five husbands and the man you know, love, sorry, say that again. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you, Jews, claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, uh, woman Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do know. We worship what you do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is the Spirit, and his worshippers in the Spirit and in the truth. 
The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the uh, word of the Lord. Thanks, Lord. Great. Well, please keep that passage open in front of you if you'd like to. So page 1066. Um, and uh, we'll be having a look at that in just a moment. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer, asking the Lord God to help us as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would open our eyes to understand this passage and you would reach into our lives to change us. Amen. Well, what makes life worth living for you? We've been thinking about that question a little bit. We've been uh, uh, asking others this question. It's worth asking ourselves, isn't it? What makes life worth living for you? There are many possible answers that people might give. Maybe for you, it's things that you do, uh, things that you're particularly good at, uh, your job maybe or a hobby, or a craft, or gardening, or something like that. Something that gives you a sense of achievement. Maybe it's experiences that you have. Going to watch your team play in sport, or going to the theatre, or holidays to exotic locations, and we heard about some of them earlier. Maybe those kind of things make life worth living. Or maybe it's relationships. I would imagine for most people that's what we would say. It's relationships. Maybe it's romantic relationship that you have. Husband or wife or partner. Maybe it's uh, family relationships. A bit broader than that. Parents, children, uh, wider family. Maybe it's friendships. Maybe it's that feeling of being totally accepted and loved and maybe needed as well. It's noticeable, isn't it, that we all need something to live for, something that makes life worth living. We say with sadness, don't we, if someone doesn't have anything to live for. See, our souls need something to be fulfilled. We have a thirst for something to satisfy our souls. But there's a problem with all of the things, any of those things that I've just mentioned. There's a problem with anything that we will look to. Now we're going to look at this incident in the Bible where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman. And we're going to do so in two parts. So you know where we're going. This is where we're heading. And uh, it's on the notice sheet as well if you want to follow on that. Um, Just these two headings are unquenchable thirst and the living water. So first we're going to start with the unquenchable thirst, our unquenchable thirst. Here's this woman meeting with Jesus at a well. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus has just been on a journey and all his closest friends have gone off to try and find food for them. Now we're not going to go into every detail of this passage, but we're just going to see this incident and the conversation that happens between them. You see, Jesus begins by asking this woman for a drink. 
Nothing unusual in that, we might think, except that she is surprised that he would do this. She says in verse 9, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? You see, there were lots of reasons why he shouldn't have spoken to her. She was, for a start, a Samaritan. Now, Samaria, which is where she was from, was a different area from Israel. It was a particular area, and Jews, those from Israel, uh, did not get on with Samaritans. They hated each other. And furthermore, he was a man, she was a woman. And in the culture of that day, they wouldn't have spoken to each other. So she is surprised that he would speak to her. And after her surprise, he then says to her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and what it is that asks, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now clearly they're talking on different levels here, aren't they? She is thinking about water from a well and he is thinking about something different, a different kind of water. Living water is what he calls it. And this talking on two levels seems to go on for a little bit. So he says, you should be asking me for a drink. And she says, in her confusion, that she doesn't get it. Verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the, water, the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? In other words, you haven't got a bucket. How are you going to get this water from this well? Well, he keeps going talking on the level that he's talking about. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm talking about a different kind of water. And she still thinks he's talking about water from the well. So, verse 15, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This sounds like a great deal. Give me this, I don't have to keep coming here. Now we'll come back to some of this conversation, some of what's already been said in a minute. But then the conversation takes an odd turn. Verse uh, verse 16, Jesus then says, go call your husband and come back. Now it looks like Jesus is going off on a tangent here. It looks like this is a strange sort of branching off in the conversation. But it isn't actually a change of subject. She replies, verse 18, sorry, verse 17, uh, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. What's Jesus doing here? He isn't changing the subject. He is showing her that her soul is thirsty. And he's showing her how she tries to quench that thirst. See, we all have this thirst for our souls. And for her, she is trying to quench that thirst with men. She's had five husbands... The man she's now with is not her husband. And yet none have quenched the thirst of her soul. They've all turned out to be dry puddles. And it seems her solution has been, well, maybe I didn't pick the right one. Maybe if I get the right guy, then my soul will be 
quenched. So she tries the next one, and it doesn't work out. And then the next one. Now we need to realise, and this is the problem that we have with anything that we try to quench our souls with, is that none of them really work. The things we say give meaning to our lives may be good in and of themselves, but how good are they actually at quenching our souls first? Some of the things that we might try to get, some of the things we try to reach for, are just always, have you noticed they're just always out of reach? So we might think, well, contentment will come when we move into the next house, or when we get the next job, or the next promotion, or in the next relationship. It's tantalizingly elusive, isn't it? Because when we get to the next one, it's always the next one. Some of the things are sort of always out of reach. And other things, when we get them, we find they're not actually as soul-quenching as we'd hoped. For many things, if we get there, we get to the, the pinnacle of whatever it is, and we get to the thing and we find it's not as good as we'd hoped for. We see this with people who we think have made it, don't we? With maybe those in, uh, in sport or in Hollywood who, who get to the top and yet their souls don't seem quenched. We think, but you've got everything. Maybe you, you've noticed this with various celebrities. Uh, recently, there was Boris Becker, wasn't there? Who reached the pinnacle of tennis playing. An amazing player. And yet his life since then, even then has shown it, it's kind of not quenched his thirst and is now in prison for bankruptcy offences. Or uh, take Matthew Perry, who played Chandler in Friends. In an interview, uh, he said about the time when Friends was at its peak, at its most popular, he said, from an outsider's perspective, it would seem like I had it all. It was actually a very lonely time for me because I was suffering from alcoholism. Now, I don't say these things to look down on those people, but rather just to see, aren't they people who we think they made it? They surely have, have got life. And yet it seems not to have been as fulfilling as we would hope. And other things that we try to satisfy our souls on are just so temporary, aren't they? If you're there when your team wins, well, it lasts for a while, but it it doesn't keep going, does it? Careers come to an end, and the biggest problem we face is death, which just ruins everything. The reality is, for many family, for many, uh, sorry, the reality is that for many of us, family is the thing. But family is sadly temporary as well, isn't it? It's a pretty depressing thought. When someone first said it to me, I thought it was utterly depressing. But when you have a family gathering, the reality is someone at that family gathering is likely to be last person standing. And will have been to the funerals of all the others. 
Death wrecks everything. Now, here's Jesus meeting with this woman, and he exposes her thirsty soul and says, you're trying to quench that thirst with men, and it's not working. Now, maybe some here feel a sort of resonance with her. In the sense that, maybe you would say, I'm not searching for Jesus. She wasn't. She wasn't searching for him. But yet he exposes for her where the thirst is. Maybe that's true for you. You're not looking for Jesus. In fact, you found the idea a bit ridiculous. But can you see the thirst in your soul? You may not be trying to quench it the way she did, but we're all trying to quench it somehow. And it is unquenchable. Well, we need to see also Jesus' offer. So we need to come to the second point, uh, the living water. Let me read again from verses 13 and 14. Have a look back at them if you've got your Bible open. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, that is quite an incredible promise. He says to her, if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. If you drink the water I give you. And he says it wells up to eternal life. Now, sometimes people assume what Jesus is talking about here is life beyond death. That the life beyond death, sort of heaven, that is life to the full. That is life, you know, totally quenched. But clearly he's not just talking about that, is he? Because he says, I can give you this living water and it will quench your thirst now and well up to eternal life. In other words, it is thirst quenching now and can give you eternal life. I mean, we are talking about life forever, but it's thirst quenching in this life. How? How is what Jesus can do? What can he give us that is so utterly thirst quenching? Well, he doesn't quench our thirst by giving us the thing that we're trying to chase after. So he doesn't say to this woman, ah, let me introduce you to the man of your dreams and then bring out from behind a rock. This is the guy that you marry. Marry him, then you'll be all right. And he doesn't give us necessarily the career that we long for or the sporting achievements or the theatrical achievements. He he doesn't just say, I'll give you life and here it is, the thing that you've been longing for. Because we need to realise those things are like drinking salt water, seawater. Seawater is good. It's good for sailing on, swimming in, apparently. Um, But it's not that great for drinking. And we're trying to drink salt water if we think those things, good though they might be, will satisfy our souls. So he doesn't then give us more of those things. That would be like giving more salt water. No, he says, actually, you've got to find meaning in something else. What? Well, this is where we need to look briefly at the end of the conversation. Which, again, looks like it goes a bit odd. She starts talking about where to worship God. So you see that in verse 19. After he said about her husbands, she says, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now again, that feels like maybe she's trying to just divert the subject into something else. He's got onto a sensitive subject. But actually, it's very, very relevant. I've just got to show you how. 
You see, the Samaritans thought they, that you were to worship God on a particular mountain. Jews thought Jerusalem was the place. Now, Jesus actually, in what it follows, does say Jerusalem is the place. He says, yeah, Samaritans got it wrong. But what's the issue there? It's not that the Jews thought that God was just located in Jerusalem, as if God was only there. I mean, you just got to look back in the Old Testament to see that's not what they thought. That they knew that God was far bigger. In fact, they said the heavens can't contain him. They knew he wasn't located just there. The issue is access to God. How do you come to God? How do you get into relationship with God? And you had to go to Jerusalem, the Jews said, because in Jerusalem was the temple. The temple, which was the place of sacrifice. You see, the Jews would go there, take an animal there. The animal would be sacrificed in place of the person, taking the punishment they deserve for their wrongdoing. That's what happened in Jerusalem. That's how you come into relationship with God. But Jesus then says, verse 21, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's saying there's going to come a point when you're not going to need Jerusalem, you're not going to need the temple, you're not going to need the sacrifices. Why? What's going to happen? What's going to change? The clue is when he says a time is coming. You might think, well, that doesn't sound like much of a clue. But more literally what he says is, an hour is coming. And in John's Gospel, when Jesus speaks about the hour, he's always talking about his death and resurrection. He's saying when that happens, things will change. Because when he dies, he is the ultimate sacrifice to take our wrongdoing, to mend our relationship with God. And so he's saying, when that happens, when that hour comes, you won't need Jerusalem, you won't need the temple, you won't need to go to a particular mountain. You'll be able to come to God through me, Jesus says. And that is the thing that can quench your thirst. A relationship with God. That is the only thing that can quench our soul's thirst. And we'll be thirsty until we come to him. In the book Real Life Jesus, Mike Kane, who pastor of a church in Bristol, I'll talk about him again in, in a few moments. He uses an illustration. He, he paints a picture of a scene of a beach where there are 40 pilot whales that have beached themselves on, on that beach. And they are in a desperate state. And he says, whales are incredible creatures, wonderful creatures, when they're in the sea. But when they're beached, they, they become pathetic, they, they, they die. And he says, the Bible teaches that as the whale was made for the ocean, men and women were made for God. He created us to enjoy his love and to reflect his ways on earth. Our relationship with him is, as it were, the environment in which we are free to be fully human. That is what will satisfy our souls, a relationship with God. And we saw the reason why we had those two stories earlier, the stories of Claude and Varsha, their testimonies, is because I want you to see that this is true for everyone and anyone. You've got two people there, very, very different people. Claude, who was from a very religious Roman Catholic background, mass every day, 
but then came to realize his own sinfulness, his need of salvation, then came to Jesus. And then Varsha, okay, Roman Catholic background a bit as well, but her life falling apart. Claude's life looked like it was very together, and then he came to faith. Her life falling apart. Broken, she said, the darkest time of her life. And then she came to Jesus, her saviour. Both found Jesus and life in him. The life Jesus offers is for anyone, for the respectable, for the outcasts, for road sweepers, for professors, for any and for all. This is life. It is, as Jesus calls it elsewhere, life to the full. And it is life whether we're going through the pains of life or the pleasures of life. Some struggle to comprehend this. You see, when Jesus says he can give life, people tend to think that must mean life without pain. But the real life Jesus gives is far greater. I'm going to read a quote for you from Mike Cain again. He was interviewed uh, recently because, uh, he's, like I say, he's a leader of a church in Bristol. Uh, over the last seven months, he's been uh, having treatment for cancer. Uh, he, under, he had to go through a very uh, major operation, and it was very painful for him to recover. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was interviewed, and he's still facing very aggressive chemotherapy. And when he was interviewed, you can watch the video on YouTube, actually. Um, he, as he sat down at the beginning, when he got up at the end, you could see he was in pain. And what he said, I thought, was really helpful and really summarizes a lot of what we're trying to say this morning. So I'm going to quote from him. This is what he said. There is nothing I want more than to say to the people I love and the people I know, do you know the life that Jesus gives? Because I have life. In all its fullness, I have that today. And you might say, what are you talking about, Mike? You don't have life in all its fullness. You have pretty serious cancer. And that's because we're so muddled about what life is. And we take our cue from the culture around us. We think life is when you've got a bit of money in the bank, when you have a happy family and a nice home and get to travel and eat out and those kinds of things. And those things are all good. But those are just the gifts. And what Jesus does is he introduces us to the giver. And the gifts are good. But if the gifts are good, can you imagine what the giver is like? The giver is so much better than the gifts. And the life Jesus gives is life in relationship with the giver, with God. It's how he describes it. Eternal life is knowing God through Christ. And that is more satisfying than nice homes and holidays and even happy families. And the point about it is that all those things are so brittle. They don't last and they get ruined by things going wrong and by illness and by death. Death totally trashes them. And the life Jesus gives is life in all its fullness because it's the relationship with God we were made for. And that withstands all that this world can throw at it. And it's not spoiled by redundancy or illness. It's not even vulnerable to death. It's not even snatched away by death. It is life that starts today and lasts forever.
Now that's what Jesus holds out to us. And I can testify, and others who are Christians can testify, actually it is life in its fullness to know God. And I want to invite you, if you don't know that life, to find out more. And there are a few ways you could go about doing it. Just very briefly, you could pick up a booklet. We've got loads of these booklets. They've got life on the front. They're on the, uh, on the shelves as you leave. Do grab one of these. They're free. Please do take one. Uh, we're going to run a course in June and July called Hope Explored. It's only three evenings. Uh, I'd love you to be on it. If you'd like to find out more, have a word with me afterwards or get in touch and uh, you'd be very welcome to come on that course. It's for people to ask questions and to find out more. But also, I want to invite you to keep coming along to Emmanuel on Sundays, on Sunday mornings, 10.30 every Sunday. Over the next four weeks, we're going to do a sermon series in which we look at the start of the greatest sermon ever preached. When Jesus preached what's called the Sermon on the Mount. At the start, he begins every sentence with the words, blessed are those who, or another translation, happy are those who. In other words, he's telling us about life, life in all its fullness and how we can have it. So we're going to look at that over the coming weeks. How about coming along and finding out more?